couple of interesting decisions last week from the Supreme Court of Canada wanted to highlight because it gets to the whole issue of sentencing in our justice system and what's reasonable. Because, look, there's an inherent amount of, um, I guess, subjectiveness where it's all kind of arbitrary when coming down to sentencing. What should the penalty be for an assault or a sexual assault or fraud or armed robbery, these kinds of things? There's no right or wrong answer. We try best to determine what's reasonable in the abstract, and then it comes down to a lot of specific circumstances. So in the criminal code, for example, all of these, these crimes have a maximum sentence that can be imposed. But it's, it's rare you would see a maximum sentence imposed, and it's meant to give some discretion. This is what we see as the upper limit, but other things get taken into consideration. Should there be a floor, though, a minimum? And this has proven to be more controversial. Now, with homicide, for example, there is a, a minimum sentence that applies, both in terms of incarceration itself, life, and parole eligibility. When it comes to other crimes, though, it's less clear whether there needs to be or should be a minimum sentence. Now, the Harper government introduced a number of mandatory minimum sentences, and some of those have been viewed rather harshly by the courts. What we got last week was, was fascinating. Two separate rulings. One of those rulings upholding a mandatory minimum when it comes to uh, robbery using a firearm, but striking down a mandatory minimum when it comes to the reckless discharge of a firearm. So how do we make sense of what seems on the surface like conflicting views from the Supreme Court on mandatory minimums? So what does it tell us about the extent to which politicians can try to shape this? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Stephen Penny, a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Professor, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. I mean, it was interesting to see this come down on the same day from the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, but is, is it consistent, even though different rulings, but do you see consistency from the court and how they view all of this? I do see... Uh you know, a relative degree of consistency here and uh, a fair amount of consensus uh, within the court on these principles. I mean, there were uh, a few dissenting judgments and concurring judgments uh, in, in these cases, but you have a pretty strong uh, majority of, of six judges agreeing on all three of these, uh, these appeals. Uh, there were two decisions involving three different uh, accused persons and three different uh, offenses, although two of them are closely related. Those are the ones involving the uh, armed robberies. And I think what the court is trying to do here in this de- these decisions is strike kind of a middle ground between giving some deference to Parliament to be able to enact mandatory minimum sentences for offenses that have, you know, inherently and almost you know, inevitably, a fairly high degree of moral culpability. In other words, it's going to be very difficult to imagine a reasonable situation where someone could commit this offense, and we would find that the minimum punishment, in this case it was four or five years, to be grossly disproportionate. And that's the standard that we use to determine whether a minimum sentence violates the charter right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. So when you have an offense that's inherently highly culpable, that presents a really grave risk to public safety and public order. And it's very difficult to imagine a situation where someone could commit that offense with a a much lower level of culpability. Then it's likely that the mandatory minimum will be upheld. 
But in contrast, where you have an offense like the reckless discharge of a firearm, where you can reasonably imagine a situation where the offender would have a very low degree of moral culpability, and you impose a very significant sentence, uh, like a four-year mandatory minimum, that's where you run into trouble, where you'd say uh, that this is a grossly disproportionate and therefore a sentence that would be cruel and unusual. And it's interesting because that, that's inherently subjective to some extent, too. And what was interesting in that case is that the four-year mandatory minimum was deemed to be disproportionate and a sentence of three and a half years was was reimposed. And, and so the public might scratch their head over saying, well, four years is, is cruel and three and a half years is okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, a kind of a, a circumstance that arises because of the way that these cases get decided. So you have to be able to say that this sentence, this minimum sentence, is applied to anyone who could reasonably commit this offense. And so the, the rule of law that we're committed to in our liberal democratic society requires that the law be interpreted in terms of its potential effects on any reasonable person who might fall within the scope of this provision. And that means that if we find that the application of this offense to a, a reasonable hypothetical offender, and that's the sort of mechanism that the court used in, in that case to decide that the four-year minimum was grossly disproportionate, then we have to strike down the mandatory minimum. And once that's struck down, then you're left with a sentencing discretion, as you mentioned earlier, where the judge is free to impose a sentence up to and including the maximum that he or she feels is fit and appropriate for the actual offender before the court. Yeah. So in the, that, this particular case, Mr. Hill was found to be deserving of a three-and-a-half-year sentence, but a hypothetical offender, and the, the example that the court used would be a, a relatively young person using a BB gun or an air-powered rifle, which would constitute a firearm under the definition in the criminal code, firing uh, you know, into you know, a, a residence wall from the outside or a shed where there's no possibility that that, uh, you know, that bullet would penetrate or cause any real threat to public safety. That would be a, you know, still a criminal offense and a somewhat serious one, but uh, you know, imposing a four-year sentence for someone in that scenario, the court felt, would be grossly disproportionate. And that's what justified striking the legislation down. Yeah, which is interesting, because I think on that hypothetical, you know, maybe the public would understand the point here, but that wasn't the case. So the, the court yeah. doesn't need to wait for that hypothetical to come before it? No, it doesn't. Uh, some people believe that it should. Uh, there's certainly an argument, uh, a logical argument, that the, the court should only be deciding these cases on the basis of the facts before them, and we certainly use that principle in a lot of other areas of the law. But here I tend to agree with the approach of the court, because you know when we use the criminal law, it's a very harsh instrument. It causes incredible a disruption in people's lives. It's very costly to society. Uh, it imposes tremendous stigma and, you know, cost on taxpayers. And so if we're going to use the criminal law and punish people, we better be fairly confident that it's necessary and it's uh, deserved. And, you know, if we want the criminal law to be applied and respected by people, we want the punishments to be defined in a way that we know what's going to happen, and we know what the law is going to capture and what it's not going to capture, and we know, what, roughly speaking, what the range of punishments is going to be. And so, therefore, it's important for the courts in interpreting and applying the Constitution, you know, the supreme law that we're all bound by, to ensure that the laws that are passed 
by parliament or provincial legislatures are consistent with the Constitution. And if we can readily see that this law could be applied, not to some fanciful scenario that's, you know, got, it's very implausible, it's, this is never going to happen, this is never going to come before the courts, it's not realistic, but rather to a situation that we can reasonably foresee. We can imagine someone using an airsoft rifle, a paint gun, a BB gun, you know, a young person sort of naively, recklessly firing it into a shed and say, well, yeah, that's, that's deserving of some sanction, but that person could be charged with this offense. And if so, that person would be subject to four years imprisonment. And therefore, in order to prevent that from happening, provide clarity in the law, and to ensure that our laws conform with constitutional guarantees, we're going to strike it down and not have to wait potentially years for that case to come before the courts. And, and with that principle, and, and so the Supreme Court applied it in this other case involving the mandatory minimum for robbery with a firearm and essentially saying that there really is no hypothetical situation here where, that would be encompassed by the law that does not entail the necessary moral culpability. So whereas that principle applied in the other case, the court's saying it really doesn't apply here. That's right. So, you know, the lawyers in that case uh, for the defendants tried very hard to come up with reasonable hypotheticals at the sort of the lower end of the spectrum of, you know, moral culpability. And uh, the court found that even in the, the least culpable, reasonable scenarios, there was still sufficient, you know, a sufficient level of wrongdoing and a sufficient level of risk to the public that justified, you know, a minimum sentence of four or five years. Now, the court did point out and I think this is important for people to understand, that there would be situations where perhaps you didn't have a loaded firearm and, and perhaps the, the danger to the public was, was attenuated and it was very low down on the scale in terms of armed robberies, that you could say that a four- or five-year sentence would be disproportionate, would not be a fit sentence, would be excessive. Nevertheless, that's not the constitutional standard, and we can't strike down legislation merely on the basis that we think the sentence would be unfit or disproportionate. It has to reach that higher threshold of gross disproportionality in order to violate the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment under Section 12. So I think what the court's doing here is saying, listen, this may not always be a proportionate sentence, but we're going to defer to Parliament. We don't think this is grossly excessive, and we can live with the results here because we think Parliament should have the power to say certain offenses require a minimum floor, no matter what the circumstances are involving the commission of the offense. Yeah, so this is interesting now going forward, because the Supreme Court isn't saying that mandatory minimums are off the table in, in all circumstances. The Supreme Court is not dictating what the penalty for a certain crime should be. Um, but, but sort of setting the standard of the threshold for where it's appropriate, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an accurate summary. And I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, while opinions on this are, are certainly going to differ, I think uh, in relation to its previous jurisprudence and the arguments that were made by you know, the opposing sides in this case, the court has found a kind of a consensus middle ground where it is going to subject certain kinds of mandatory minimums to, to scrutiny, ones that capture a great range of conduct where we can imagine relatively innocent behavior being swept up by the provision, and it's going to contrast that to a different class of cases like these armed robbery minimum sentences where the court says, yeah, it may be disproportionate from time to time, but generally speaking, 
this is a fit sentence and it's not going to result realistically in any gross disproportionality. So we'll see if that continues, but I suspect that this area of the law is going to remain fairly stable, at least in the near term. Really interesting. Appreciate the insight on all of this, uh, Stephen Penny. Thank you so much for joining us here. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.